Thank you all for coming today. We'd like to introduce Scott. Um, so Scott is an American businessman who has experience as a New York Stock Exchange traded company CEO and as a board member for uh, profit and nonprofit uh, based institutions. He has served on the most senior leadership teams across multiple industries, including financial services, mass merchandising, brand management, private equity engineering, and staffing. He has served on the global executive committees of Lehman Brothers as chief administrative officer, Invest Corpus CEO of Europe, Sears Holding as chief operating officer, um, and CDI Corporation, where he served as CEO. Scott has served on for-profit boards, including NNW Global Vending, ICOPAL, GL Education, Lands End, and not-for-profit boards, including the U.S. Olympic and Paralympics Foundation, um, the Institute of International Education, which administers the Fulbright Scholarship Program, and the Spelman College. Scott is a member of the Economic Club of New York and the Council on Foreign Relations. Scott was named a, a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and has participated in many panels uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, including as a rapporteur for the opening plenary session, as well as the inaugural New Champions Meeting in Dalian, China, and was a member of WEF's Global Agenda Council. Scott lives in Aspen with his three children and his wife, um, and he's also a Knight of Malta, which he'll maybe talk about later. But with that, I would like everyone to give Scott a warm welcome. Thank you. Let me preface it by saying that um, Lehman did not deserve to get bailed out. Goldman Sachs didn't deserve to get bailed out. Morgan Stanley didn't deserve to get bailed out. None of those institutions did. Main Street, though, did. And I'll talk a little bit about that. That doesn't mean that anyone in the management team deserved to have a job or any economic um, fruits of the labor having been at that institution. Uh, but it means that where we are is we're, we're in a place today that's worse than we were going into the crisis as it relates to our ability to have a safety net. And when I think about uh, the experience of the 10-year crisis, um, that's not something you plan for. You don't plan to go to GSB, then go to Goldman Sachs and work for 17 years, giving up virtually everything in life, and it's so easy to get sucked in, and then be wiped out and be 18 months from personal bankruptcy. But that's what it was. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about the crisis, but a common denominator is having safety nets in life, not having all of your eggs in one basket. And uh, that's not the function of spirituality, but it's certainly one of the byproducts um, that if you have uh, faith, if you're grounded in your spirituality, if you have a community that can support you in that uh, to make it so that uh, you're not alone, uh, it's a really powerful thing. And I, for one, uh, didn't have enough of that in my life as I went through a career on Wall Street and one of the things that I did immediately post uh, Lehman Brothers uh, in my conversations with Thomas was to figure out uh, how I could go about building that. And in the reference earlier made about um, uh, on my bio, uh, I did join uh, the Sovereign Military Order of St. John of Jerusalem of Rhodes and Malta, known as 
the Knights of Malta, and uh, it's been incredibly fulfilling. And it's been incredibly fulfilling because the center of that universe is the sick and the poor, and it's about uh, creating a slice of fulfillment in your life that is so much more important than anything else you might have done. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, you and me in this instance, I've surrounded by myself with scholars in uh, faith that uh, are incredibly knowledgeable and helpful in my own personal journey. So I'll start with Lehman Brothers, and I'll give you some vignettes and enough um, to make it so that uh, you've got a basis for uh, questions, whatever you want. Everything's fair game. And uh, I'll try and open it up as quickly as I can. <clears throat> Some of the, the, the go-to questions over the last 10 years have been, when did you know? Uh, and I can tell you that <clears throat> uh, the number of people that have used the, the, the crisis as a basis to improve their personal brand is just extraordinary. And uh, I find it comical that so many people stand up there and say, oh, I can point to this, I can point to that. I knew it was coming. And I can do the same thing with you right now. January of 2008, you can, uh, you can see that I was quoted alongside Jamie Dimon and uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, and I said, because people were talking about are we in a recession or not, um, it doesn't matter if we're in a recession or not. We're in a credit recession, and we have to deal with it. That was my quote. So I can say, ah, I knew. However, fast forward to the weekend, the Sunday that Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, I had four press releases on my desk. One said that we'd just been acquired by Bank of America. One said we had just been acquired by Barclays Capital. One said that we'd restructured our balance sheet and we had federal support. And one said we filed for bankruptcy. I had no idea Sunday which one was going to go out. So for all those people who say, I knew it was coming, I knew it was coming, um, unless they made a fortune like John Paulson did, um, the number of people who knew it was coming was few and far between. And at the time, um, as any other person who was an executive on Wall Street could say, uh, we were all talking with the people who were supposed to be the smartest people in finance. Nobody knew. <clears throat> Part of the reason nobody knew is because we at Lehman Brothers, like our counterparts, and we know this because uh, we hire from each other's firm with such regularity. We had all modeled this stuff. Modeling is not a new concept, and we have very sophisticated risk management tools. And I'll tell you that we had simulated every crisis going back 50 years. But that didn't suffice, because it was worse than that. We didn't, we didn't model something that was worse than every crisis in the past 50 years, but we were totally fine. So all the things that you heard about executives saying, we don't need capital, we don't need capital. It wasn't that they were just talking their own book and they were trying to uh, prop up confidence just because um, uh, they had some baseless position that was in their self-interest, rather. There were all kinds of sophisticated models that said everything is, everything is fine because you've got the power of diversification working on the asset side of, uh, uh, of your balance sheet. But uh, the first time that we thought Mm. Uh, it's coming our way was in March of 2008. And that was when Bear Stearns went down. And I remember I had my first weekend off. 
with my fiance and uh, we were in uh, Turks and Caicos and I didn't get off the phone the entire time. And it was about assessing uh, where they were and what implication that had on the rest of us. And by Sunday, I called our uh, chairman and CEO, Dick Fold, and said, Dick, I hate to state the obvious, but we're it. I said, what do you mean? I said, go back 30 years in every difficult market environment, the little guy gets taken out. Whether it's acquired, whatever the case may be, the little guy gets taken out. And you go through all the names, DLJ, Peabody, Payne Weber, they all got taken out because they were the smallest in the industry at a point in time. We were now the smallest. So uh, he said, what do, you, what do you want to do? To which I said, well, we, we got to look at uh, a halo investor, a, street, a strategic investor. We got to look at merging the company, selling the company, the whole thing. Now, again, to uh, what actually happened, um, a lot of people think that uh, Dick Fold, who was notoriously truth, tr true um, to his reputation to that point, that he was notoriously averse to selling the company, which he was, he spun on a dime at that point in time. So the words out of my mouth were, we are now the smallest. We have to do something. And then the deck goes through, um, who are the strategic investors? Who are the halo investors? And you'll see, and I think GSB students would appreciate the quality of the performance of the analysis. <laughs> I hope you will. Um, that would actually be comical if you actually found a mistake in there. But, uh, but uh, we went through it all. And um, at the conclusion of that session, Dick said to the executive committee, what do you guys think? And no one said anything. Because the last time we had a meeting where we had talked about having a strategic investor was probably uh, 1996. And the one guy who raised his hand and said, we should sell the company, was fired within a month. <laughs> so nobody said anything, that's a true story. Um, so no one said anything. And Dick said, then said, well, I agree with everything. And I, to that point, for the past 10 years, was responsible for M&A for the house, as opposed to for clients. But I had a staff of, call it, 25 McKinsey uh, folks, whereas our FIG group, our financial institutions group, had uh, close to 150. So he said, Skip McGee, who was the then head of investment banking, you're in, give me solutions. And from that point on, we had talked to probably 100 institutions going through uh, ways to try and get any one of those alternatives. So living from March through the final weekend uh, was, uh, I, thought, I thought being a summer associate was hard. Uh, <laughs> it was the same hours except you're not working on a pitch book. You're, you're dealing with globally reproduced uh, storylines that you have to refute somehow without going on the record. Because the then uh, uh, CEO, Alan Schwartz of Bear Stearns, had just created the model 
that if you wheel out a senior executive to say, we have no problem, the entire world says, you've got a problem. <laughs> so that wasn't an option. And we were talking with all of the top PR folks in the world, and everyone concurred. So you had to do battle behind the scenes on how to refute this stuff. And uh, I've talked to a couple people recently. Um, uh, this, this felt to me like the birth of fake news on a widespread scale. Uh, March 27th, immediately following Bear Stearns, I'll give you, I, I'm just gonna pick one day because what we did is we documented this stuff and we went to the SEC and said, hey, look, uh, you, you can't allow naked short selling, which you're not allowed to do, and then have all of this short and distorted activity. Um, uh, and by the way, I'm going through this as an anecdote, not to suggest whatsoever that uh, Lehman should not have gone under and it was the fault of uh, people who were rumor mongering. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just telling you what it was like to be there on a daily basis. But uh, I picked one day uh, for no other reason that when I was looking through it, uh, it sounded like a fun day in retrospect. And it was March 27th. What happened? There were widespread rumors on one day that we were filing for bankruptcy that Wachovia had stopped doing business with us. Just imagine you're a global institutional investment bank, this being the rumor. It's not you blew, you, you, you blew a deal or you had some a rogue trade. No, it's you're going bankrupt. Uh, Wachovia had stopped doing business with us. We had major positions with Icelandic banks and they were gonna fail and we were gonna suffer enormous losses that we had stopped our repurchase program that would be one of those. You know, what happens if you, you know, issue a dividend? Don't issue a dividend. What happens to the stock price? So same thing with repurchase program. We, that we announced that we, we, that we were stopping the repurchase program and that we're borrowing heavily from the Fed. Every single one of those was false. Every single one. Fabricated. But the pressure to diffuse those was really intense. And... The problem with it was, what happened on March 27th? Our stock dropped 9%. It worked. It was the easiest short in the world. And if you go fast forward to how this was, whether you want to call it a tsunami or a forest fire and how it was accelerating, we held out for six months. Goldman and Morgan Stanley were right there. And if you look at the high and lows of intraday trading, what happened to Goldman Sachs stock? What happened to Morgan Stanley stock the eight days surrounding the Lehman event? Goldman Sachs down 50%. 50% in eight days. Morgan Stanley, 75%. So from my perspective, unambiguously, I agree with Timothy Geithner, the then president of the New York Fed, when he said, there is no major bank that would have withstood the crisis and that would have survived. Hank Paulson echoed that by saying, his words, not mine, Morgan Stanley was going down within days. There was no doubt in my mind. When they went to Congress and said, we're not gonna have an economy, I don't know about that. I haven't studied uh, what would have happened, but uh, certainly Great Depression-esque kind of uh, ramifications. So what was it like to work there um, was anyone doing anything nefarious or illegal? I never saw it. Was, uh, was everyone working 
enormous amounts of hours every day trying to deal with all kinds of issues, absolutely. And it was selling anything and everything. It was firing people. It was cutting non-personnel costs. Um, I think I was personally responsible for firing, I don't know, 10,000 people, taking a quarter of a billion dollars of costs. So it was a wretched time uh, to be at a global institutional investment bank. Um, within that, was there anything um, uh, specific to Lehman Brothers that made it so that this was an idiosyncratic issue that related to Lehman Brothers, whereas everyone else had different institutions. The flavor was different at every one of these institutions. But on those core attributes, virtually the same. We copied each other all the time. I met with my counterparts all the time. And we would monitor what each other did, and then uh, we would copy those that we thought were productive uh, to our competitiveness. So risk. Um, most people, and I certainly would have the impression that Lehman took on an inordinate amount of risk relative to the peer group in that period of time. Well, fact is uh, that we were relatively uncompetitive in covering private equity, namely because we had not adopted the tools that increased risk. So when uh, Chuck Prince um, who I know some people here in, in the audience are close to, uh, said something to the effect of as long as the music's playing, you have to continue to dance. What he was referring to was the enormous amount of dry powder that was uninvested capital that private equity had. And when private equity says, we're going to buy a company and we want you to finance it, what can you offer? And there are lots of tools that one can offer. You can reduce the number of covenants that you have. You can put on more bank debt. You can leverage it up uh, to a greater degree. You can forfeit your fees. These were all things that were happening. We hadn't adopted those. Others had. It wasn't that we didn't have risk, but I'm just saying that was one that was a celebrated category of risk. Subprime, obviously everyone knows about that one. We weren't a subprime house. Now we had mortgages, but we weren't a subprime house. We were a commercial real estate house. Everyone had different flavors. So on risk-weighted assets, uh, we were middle of the pack. Um, uh, Goldman was the proprietary house. That was the risk shop. And if you look at the five years before uh, 2008, leading up to 2007, you can look at this in, in public documents. Um, you're not going to find it in the press because it doesn't help the storyline for Main Street. Oh, guess what? Everyone was in a disastrous position, and you all could have lost your houses, not just a whole bunch of you. That doesn't feel very good. So, uh, but our, our VAR, value at risk, and it's, it's a measure that says to what degree do you, it's one measure. Um, Goldman Sachs, over the five years prior to that, was more than double Lehman Brothers, um, just under double in 2008. Another one that you can look at that's uh, uh, disclosed frequently is number of lost trading days. And in the five years leading up to 2008, Goldman Sachs had five times as many as Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was a client flow model. Then you could say, well, well, if Goldman Sachs is riskier, then how come Lehman was the one that went under? Investment banking is a model of trust. And what all of us 
I told you about the simulations, how we had simulated that, but in an extreme case, you're gonna be vulnerable if your level three assets, and uh, on the asset side of your balance sheet, you have three categories. Level one, which is marketable securities. You can get in and out, and you mark those you know, many times during the course of a day. Level two assets are slightly illiquid. Think high yield bonds, they trade um, a, a little less frequently. Level three assets would be private equity investments. It would be investments in commercial real estate, a thousand acres of land that you're developing, those sorts of things. All of us had level three assets that exceeded our equity base. That put us at risk if you really squeezed and got all of the people who were the short-term funders to say, I'm not gonna touch this. And that's what happened. We had a funding crisis. We didn't have a solvency crisis, we had a funding crisis. And um, what happened during the course of those days was trying to deal with this. So that was a liquidity thing. And all of us had it, and that's why it started sweeping through because by the time you got to the last weekend, Everyone was, it wasn't, it wasn't a mild flight to quality. It was a complete and total flight to quality. It was a panic. So um, as it relates to safety nets, uh, one of the primary uh, problems was post the Great Depression, the Fed, the Fed put together a great uh, foundation, uh, you know, a, a term that was used for different purposes, tar breaking the glass. <coughs> And namely, it's Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. And basically what it says is the Fed, uh, which regulates banks, can step into a non-bank uh, financial institution and say, we're going to inject you, uh, prop you up, because uh, there is systemic risk that can hurt the whole system. Now, I think we were uh, blessed with extraordinarily talented people uh, as custodians. Think Ben Bernanke. I mean, he was a student of uh, the Great Depression, uh, one of the top academics in the field. Uh, Tim Geithner is someone who had a whole series of experience understanding uh, crises, how to deal with them, and whether bailing out is a good thing or a bad thing. But at that point in time, we had uh, pressure, and that pressure was political. So... Uh, I've got young kids, and they're dealing with pressure, peer, peer pressure in kindergarten and uh, in second grade. And that pressure doesn't stop. So if you're a business school student, you're going to have pressure to do stuff that's outside the bounds of what you think is right and wrong, and you're going to have to make a call. I don't know how many, how many people watch Billions. <laughs> so, episode, so season three, episode two, there was just a scene where the uh, Southern District uh, of New York attorney says... Uh, he meets with the attorney general who tells him uh, there was a convict. You saw the thing? Yeah. So it was a terrible yeah, pressure job. moment. So he, he's the uh, uh, attorney general for the Southern District, and I'm the attorney general. So there's this prisoner who killed a guard. And as it turns out, the guard had done awful, awful, awful things to this person who was incarcerated. But for political reason, the attorney general said, you're going to prosecute it. And he knows that this person was innocent and whether it was a self-defense, but the, the atrocities that this one particular out-of-control guard uh, were really horrifying. And he said, you're either going to do it or the absolute clear implication is 
forget about being governor of New York and forget about your seat, you're fired. So what does he do? Um, you're gonna have lots of those kinds of things. There was a different type of pressure at this moment in time on Timothy Geithner, who was the president of the New York Fed, uh, on Ben Bernanke, and on Hank Paulson, who was the then Secretary of the Treasury. Recall uh, the late uh, John McCain and President Obama, they were on the campaign trail. They were saying enough of bailouts for Wall Street. We gotta bail out Main Street. That's nice to say, and that helps uh, get votes because who more justified to vilify than Wall Street? And justifiably so in this case. However, that doesn't help Main Street. And the problem is that there was a political decision that was made that crushed Main Street. And that decision was, we have to let one go. Because if we don't let one go, then we're not going to be able to prove that we should save the rest. If you didn't touch it, I think lots of people would not dispute that they were all going to go. Um, and that was the conundrum they were in. They had, they had the formula. It was established uh, right after the Great Depression. Uh, and they should have used it. And it would have cost billions. Now, as we've seen, all of that got paid back. But it would have, at the time, it would have been billions. Instead, it cost Main Street trillions. So it was a disastrous mistake. But I don't second guess them. And the reason I don't second guess them is I can't imagine what it would be like to be the person who has to be the only one saying, uh, I think we should support them, when the entire country is saying, like, again? You're out of your mind. So the political pressure uh, was extraordinary. Now, just because the political pressure was extraordinary and it was totally understandable, in my view, doesn't mean that we should set ourselves up to do the same thing again. And what I've actually appreciated is over the past, particularly this year, the discourse has changed a little. And if you listen to the words out of people's mouths, it's no longer, we were legally precluded to save Lehman Brothers. It's more of a judgment call at this point. And there are people who are talking around it very specifically. But it's, it's very comfortable to say that there was one bad player and you point to one bad player, he's the bad guy, you throw him in jail and we're done, we can all sleep at night. But that just wasn't the case and it's not where we are today. With the digital transformation that's ripping through corporate America, uh, and when you look at fintech and the number of companies, th there will be another crisis. It's going to be a different form, but in terms of having a safety net, we need a safety net that protects Main Street. So I think there are a couple things that are important. One, I think we should convene a Basel IV. For uh, those of you who don't know, that's the uh, Basel uh, Supervisory Committee um, in banking. And it's a aggregation, globally represented group of people. And they establish standards, not regulation, that say banks should have the following limits on 
those things that connect most tightly to susceptibility to a crisis, for those that, particularly for those who carry systemic risk. Um, risk weighting of assets, leverage, uh, and liquidity, those three things. We've now been operating under Basel III for a number of years, uh, even though it only formally uh, uh, had to have been adopted by everyone uh, uh, more recently, but everyone's been operating under that uh, baseline. Okay, did we dial in the right levels on each? It's impossible that we dialed in exactly right. So either we're, we're too tight or uh, we're too loose, but we could not have dialed it in just right. So I think that's one thing that we have to do. But irrespective of where they land the plane on that, if they do that, we still have the possibility that risk can happen because you're going to dial it in because you because capital markets equals jobs, it equals innovation and creativity and standard of living. And when you look at East versus West, I think it's pretty clear, but I don't particularly want to debate that. So, um, uh, but wherever you dial it in, you're still going to have risk. So is it fair that Main Street, if there's a collapse, pays for the risk carried by Wall Street? I don't think so. So I think we need a second layer. So for example, um, can the two of us start an airline tomorrow and just start ripping around Chicagoland for joyrides? Well, no. The DOT is going to say, whoa, 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 you guys can't just be flying around. You, you have to go through all kinds of things. And <clears throat> all those things cost money. If um, we want to start mass producing some kind of cupcake that, I don't know, it we think is really going to be great. Well, the FDA is going to say, time out. I want to make sure that, just like, say, drugs, uh, that you're going to give it. I want to make sure it's safe. <clears throat> Financial institutions are super complicated. And um, uh, at Lehman Brothers, we had a trillion dollars of notional value of derivatives. Um, and the financial institutions say, I'm sure they have a lot more. But they're really, really complicated. So when you look at the talent pool in DC and you say, you know, how, how qualified and capable are they of monitoring the, uh, the top people from all of these business schools who are now in this, how can I make the most money environment? They're in a really tough spot. So I think if we had a safety net, which was either uh, the financial institutions pay into a fund so that there was industry dollars ready to go when anyone got into trouble, the political pressure would be diffused because it's not coming from Main Street. It's coming from Wall Street. Uh, so whether you call it a fund, uh, insurance, <clears throat> whatever that is. And uh, when I look back from the time when I was there to today, we're largely in the same place. Um, because Wall Street doesn't have to pay for the systemic risk for which they carry, they're now in a position where they can take that money that they would have had to pay, like the FDA or the DOT or whoever, and give it to the employees in compensation. So uh, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised right before um, our talk today that um, one of the uh, GSB students was uh, working at 
the Obama Foundation and was going to go into public policy. That's pretty rare. Uh, it certainly was rare when I was coming out of business school. Um, but if you look at the graduating classes, say, Harvard Business School, there's no industry that has more people going into finance than that industry. There's none. In fact, they have as much as seven times the GDP of other groups. In other words, take, take the GDP of finance, call it a trillion, and then you take seven trillion dollars of industry, they have the same number of graduates going. So effectively, we, through the regulatory structure right now, we're subsidizing talent going into finance. Um, not sure that's the right thing for the country to be doing. Uh, but uh, it's an industry that I think justifiably has lots of demands and provides a invaluable service to society. But I think we're in a place that's inconsistent with where we should be, particularly having lived through the crisis. I'm not sure what the appetite to build that safety net is, um, but we have to depoliticize it. And even when you look at, say, um, a Dodd-Frank and the Federal Reserve Act, we've built in measures to make it so that uh, it's now harder for the Fed to do what it needs to do. And we need to empower them because that's the best and the brightest that we have in terms of how to handling and diffusing um, uh, negative impacts of systemic risk. So uh, I can give you one little one on specifically what that means. The Fed used to be able to uh, uh, e uh, execute on Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act to provide money to a financial institution in trouble if it thought it met those two uh, thresholds. Um, they were exigent times and that they thought they were going to get paid back. But uh, now they can't do it on their own. They now have to get the approval of the Secretary of Treasury. So today would be Steve Nugent. I know him. He's a good guy. I went on a boating trip with him and he's a really nice guy. But guess what? If the current president says, Stephen, you're not going to do it, he's in one of those really weird, awful moments. And as a country where Main Street is in a position where they could lose billions or trillions, we don't want that dynamic. So we need to depoliticize it. So that's one thing that I hope happens. Um, I presume, I'll do one more vignette and then I'm gonna move on from Lehman Brothers. Um, I presume that uh, someone might say, well, um, uh, Lehman didn't qualify for a bailout because uh, it was insolvent that weekend. Fortunately, there's a lot more information now that suggests that's not the case, but we don't even have to debate that. And the reason we don't is because back in June, uh, I was on the call with uh, Dick Fold, our CEO, uh, Ian Lowett, our CFO, Tom Russo, our chief legal officer, Raj Cohen, who's the chairman of Solidarity and Cromwell, and we were on a call with Timothy Geithner. And we said in June, we want to be converted into a bank holding company. And the reason we want it to be converted into a bank holding company is because no one is going to mess with the Fed. And we're in a game of, and a business of trust. And so long as you're now regulated by the Fed, then the investors are gonna say, I'm not gonna short 
knowing that the Fed is backstopping this name. So, because uh, mind you, this didn't happen to the commercial banks like it happened to the investment banks. The investment banks were not regulated by the Fed. They said no. Now, fast forward. Lehman goes bankrupt. Within days, they converted Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs into a bank holding company, and the problem went away because you're not going to fight the Fed. So we need to make sure that we get rid of those political elements because right now the safety net isn't as good as it was before. The standards are better, but it's not as if it's riskless. And if something happens, it's going to be a political nightmare for somebody to step in because they're going to have that awful dilemma facing them. But shortly after the crisis, um, I can tell you it was a pretty dark moment um, when uh, Dick Fold put down the phone with uh, uh, Bob Diamond, who was the then uh, CEO of Barclays Capital, who said, I can't do a deal with you tonight. And Dick is imploring, we can do a deal tonight. He said, I can't do it tonight. Uh, obviously, now we know it was because um, the UK regulators won't allow him, uh, which was too bad, but that's where it was. Dick put down the phone, he put his head down, and he said, I think I'm going to throw up. And uh, he looked like it. Right then is when, uh, you know, in so many moments, whether you're in business school working on a case study, whether you're in your summer associate or full-time job, and you're working on a model, whatever it is, I stopped, I stopped being on autopilot, and that was the first time that I started to think, what's gonna, what now? I knew I was out of the job. That was an obvious one. I did the mental math. I knew that I was going to be personally bankrupt in 18 months. I was the youngest guy in the executive committee, and I had one of those... Um, uh, I was at, at, at a point in time in my career where we had five-year vesting and sales restrictions on the stock we got. So while I felt very comfortable going into this, and I was one of those guys being paid more than $10 million a year, and it felt really good, what was 90% of it was stock. That's a zero. So after tax, I wasn't in the top 5,000. So I, was, I had just, in essence, given up virtually everything in life because I had no diversification on my personal pie. There was no spirituality. There was no extracurricular. There was no athletics. There was de minimis time for family. I remember sometimes on occasion I'd go to dinner with my, or, or lunch with my dad. I'd skate out of work and he had to have ordered my entree for me to come in, woof it down and leave. That was my life. I had, I had nothing outside of Lehman. All of a sudden, I just get zeroed out. When you think of, uh, and there are a whole bunch of quant analogies that you know, some of you might like, but it's decision trees, it's contingency planning, it's all that kind of stuff. Um, you never think it's gonna be tails, 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 tails. It can. And uh, I, in my personal life, was the sucker who walked into the Vegas casino and you see the roulette tables and it, it, it has 10 reds in a row. 
And I got an A in probability and statistics. Now, I know it's easier at Northwestern than here, but I still got an A. If there are 10 reds in a row, I don't care that it's 50-50. It's not. It's got to be better than that. So same thing here. So that was, it was about that time. It, wasn't, it was shortly after that that I talked to uh, one of the most researched uh, studied academics of Catholicism that I've ever met uh, in Thomas, and uh, we went through a whole universe of stuff. And uh, he was the one who embarked me on a path to uh, thinking about some of these orders, and one of them was uh, the Knights of Malta, and um, I built that into my life, and now I'm surrounded by people who are 100 times more studied uh, in faith than I am. So whenever I have one of my 50 doubting Thomas kinds of questions, I get a wicked cool answer that's grounded in uh, a ton of fact and history. So there are lots of different ways that you can build safety nets in life, whether it's professionally um, in the networks you build. For those of you who go into a company, I would suggest do not make the mistake that I met. I was the most connected guy within Lehman, but I had nothing outside of Lehman. So when Lehman went, I was in deplorable shape relative to being able to leverage those networks. So uh, if there's something that I'd leave with you, um, it's think about as you apply that decision tree in life and portfolio theory, use it for your personal life so that you will have a safety net. Um, uh, that's about as close as I could get to an analogy to the global crisis uh, and connect those dots. I'm not gonna do what uh, Lloyd Blankfein probably regretfully did when he said uh, we do God's work. Not so sure about that one. So with that, why don't we open up for questions and feel free to ask anything. I just wanted to give you enough of a, a peek into uh, what it was like at that time working at Lehman, uh, but everything's fair game.